Hello and welcome back to There's a Startup for That powered by CoCube. This is a podcast dedicated to telling the stories of collaboration and innovation at corporates, celebrating awesome partnerships. You're here with me, Neil, and my colleague, Mark. Hello. And we are back with the first Save the Corporate story of 2024. How exciting, Mark. Yes, Neil, the first of 2024. What a, and what a way to start this new season. And we're going to be exploring all things corporate foundation. Um, and how it can be used as a vehicle to make positive changes in the world. Now, I mean, we work, don't we, Neil, with a number of corporates at mm-hmm. CoCubed, and it's fair to say that this model of innovation is quite unique. So I'm really excited to look at corporate foundation and how that can be used as a vehicle. Joining us today, we have Cynthia Hansen from ADECO Innovation Foundation, who'll be sharing with us her journey from setting up the foundation to where it is today and the impact it has made along the way. So welcome, Cynthia. Thank you so much. Nice to be with you. So lovely to have you. Cynthia, where are you you joining us from in the world? I'm in Zurich, where it's actually Zurich. sunny and kind of spring-like today. Yeah, it does feel like that. We, we got yeah. the same in London. It's a beautiful spring day. Um, Cynthia, we mentioned just there briefly in the intro about corporate foundation. Let's Let's kick this off with Okay, what exactly is a corporate foundation? And just give us a bit of an intro to yourself as well and what life is like in Zurich. Sure. So corporate foundations tend to be essentially the philanthropic giving arm of corporations, but they take a lot of different forms. So many of them are grant giving, some of them are programming, some of them are kind of a hybrid. And what we've done, which I'll tell you a little bit more about later, is something that's really totally different and is pushing the boundaries. And Mm -hmm. I actually didn't come from the Corporate Foundation world until I took this job now about six years ago. And rather, I came out of a mix of uh, having worked in the not-for-profit sector in the US and the UK and elsewhere, having worked quite a lot uh, in public-private partnership and also in the corporate world but always essentially at this nexus of government, business, civil society, and academia. So this was really the perfect job for me to come and pull all of those strands together and see how to marshal those kinds of resources to actually drive social impact. Wow, um, very impressive. Um, And I guess we could start by understanding a little bit more as well um, in how like Innovation Foundation at ADECO started. Um, So could you tell us a little bit about how you you know, after you landed the role, like what did you do and how Innovation Foundation started? Sure, I actually will back up even a little bit before that because <laughs> um, this was actually the first role of its type that the group had advertised on LinkedIn. So actually wow. I happened to just see it on LinkedIn and I did know the ADECO group because part of uh, my role at the World Economic Forum, one of the jobs that I held was to head the professional services industry group. So the ADECO group was essentially my client, and so I was interested uh, in their own evolution. They were going through a lot of changes, and they had actually recently rebranded as the ADECO group to pull what at that time was um, 10 global brands and 60 countries and quite a decentralized Mm -hmm. structure under one umbrella and to run really as a multinational. So back to why they had started up a foundation or why, what was the impetus behind it. Part of it was now as truly a multinational and a, a bit more centralized organization, 
they were interested in how they could marshal their resources behind a corporate foundation as a way to really drive social impact as the group. And at that time, they already had four national foundations. They've now got five. And this was the first time to actually put together a global foundation, which would not serve an, a national um, set of interests, but actually would have global remit. And so that was an ex exciting time to come on board and to really look at what it could be and, uh, and how we could play. So, so that it meant that I came in actually with a fairly open field. Mm -hmm. and the genesis was a little bit unusual in that they had already set up the founding board. They had written statutes which were quite broad, which gave a lot of scope for uh, a lot of latitude. And, um, and then they had identified some existing programs and projects to take out of the group and put into the foundation. So you know, the, the first version of it was more or less an umbrella. And, mm -hmm. But it really was kind of a luxury opportunity to come in and um, have some things to play with, but actually have a lot of scope for um, reinvention and to figure out what a corporate foundation could do and be, and not necessarily come into something that was a cookie cutter or already had a standard plan behind it. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that the scope was quite wide in terms of like when you first come in. Was there any? Um, particular areas that you chose to focus on in the first iteration of the foundation? Um, what areas or projects did you decide to go with? So um, they had actually, the founding board, when I say they, had, uh, mm -hmm. had identified some things that needed to go into the foundation. And then there was kind of an overlay of what legally could go into the foundation. And so that made for kind of an interesting starting point because mm -hmm. some of the things that had originally been earmarked for the foundation didn't legally go into the foundation because the tax authorities decided they weren't a close enough fit, but they came into my team. So in mm -hmm. addition to the things that were in the foundation, the, I had some things that were outside. So for example, we already had a fantastic flagship program on youth and employment called CEO for one month. So that one went into the foundation uh, and, uh, and actually became one of the key pillars that we built some other things around. There was another one called Win for Youth, which was essentially an employee mm -hmm. engagement program around health and well-being, which also came in to the foundation legally. Um, that one also we used kind of as the seed around which to build some other things. And then there were some other pieces that were a little bit further afield. So there was an athlete transition program called the Athlete Career Program at mm. that time, which was originally earmarked to come in, but didn't go in for tax reasons. So that was, uh, was actually a good vehicle for seeing how could something that had social value, but also potential commercial value, sit mm. alongside what was in the foundation. And mm -hmm. then there were a couple of other things. There was traditional CSR, which then we reshaped into sustainability, also in my team, but outside the foundation. And then some other things that had been corporate sponsorships that we then brought inside, kind of morphed into projects, and then again, used to scaffold. So I would say the, the key thing here was to look for the red thread among mm -hmm. those original pieces of the portfolio. So the obvious red thread is they, they all had some kind of social impact to them. They were all related to employment. Mm. And then we needed to figure out what that meant in terms of just maybe two or three key messages. And so we boiled this down to actually two complementary messages. One was employability for underserved populations. So mm. youth uh, as a group could be underserved. Athletes as a group were somewhat underserved when they went to actually leave a sport career and go into something else. 
Mm -hmm. uh, that also applied to musicians. We had a musicians program that we had inherited. Again, so we were able to define people who were underserved as those who were having difficulty getting into or staying in work. So that left mm -hmm. it broad enough to leave a lot of room for play, but also specific enough to make it easily understandable. And then the other side, with uh, the health and well-being piece was really around once people are in work, they need to be healthy, fit for purpose, able to stay in work. Mm. So the initial narrative was help people get into work and then help them to stay in work. And those two pieces fit generally well enough to do that first iteration of the strategy. But then what we found was over time, they started to kind of pull in different directions as one would expect. Mm -hmm. I love the... Um I guess the combination of like the social impact from the foundation side, but also um, everything to do with employment, which is essentially what ADECO is about. So like kind of combining that into the foundation, that was really interesting to hear. Um, and Cynthia, I think in 2020, you had a pivotal moment um, in which, you know, you pivoted Innovation Foundation from being that traditional programming foundation um, to a social innovation lab. Uh, first of all, can you tell us a bit about like that journey and also what that means like in terms of what a social innovation lab means, what that means for the foundation moving forward? Of course. So in addition to stitching together the things that were in that initial portfolio that I had inherited, I set up the social innovation lab very early. So we actually started this in early 2018 and we only mm -hmm. got our approval as a foundation the end of 17. And so I started playing with this model of what became the Social Innovation Lab, which was essentially to marry really good research and data with co-creation and design thinking to come mm -hmm. up with new solutions. And we started in the first iteration of that to build it around some of those things that we had already in the foundation. This was when I used that language of kind of scaffolding around existing programs and projects. So we'd started this up kind of on the side so that it would be complementary to the existing portfolio pieces, not compete with them, uh, mm -hmm. but it would give us kind of a sandbox to play in on the side. And so we did that for roughly two years. And so as you were saying, 2020 was really that pivotal year. And what um, the tipping point was really the change of chairman. And so mm -hmm. um, the previous chairman had been fantastic and uh, as a supporter and a champion of what we were building. And then when the new chairman came in, it was an opportunity to brief a new leader on what we were doing, bring fresh eyes, and really ask him for his opinion about should we continue on this two-track model? Should we choose one or the other? And mm -hmm. he agreed that we should actually stop and take stock um, we had been going for long enough that we had some good things to show, and it was a, a perfect moment to actually look with the board at what we wanted to do and what we thought the best way forward was. So we actually did that review in a really comprehensive way in the second half of 2020. And it was then, by the end of 2020, that we landed on the decision that we would narrow the focus uh, mm -hmm. to just employability and access to labor markets for underserved populations. So that was in part similar to that first idea of employability for underserved populations, but it added this idea of access to labor markets and it added mm -hmm. another dimension of um, to secure sustainable livelihoods. So not just employment for the sake of employment, but really employment as part of a, a bigger mosaic of what makes people successful. Uh, and then the other key decision was to work only as the social innovation lab and to no longer run the, the big 
legacy pieces, the programs, the global projects. And so that meant that once that decision was made, then we had the mandate to spend the next year basically transforming the organization. And so in 2021, that's when we changed um, from being a more traditional programming foundation to really just being the social innovation lab. And in that year, we spun off seven different pieces of work, each mm -hmm. of them with their own change process. So that was a lot. Uh, <laughs> on top of that, we, uh, we then did a rebrand. We originally thought mm -hmm. we would just kind of do a brand refresh and keep the name the same. We were originally the ADECO Group Foundation. Uh, but we actually, hand in hand with this big transformation, we decided to change the name and change the brand. We mm. also changed the board because we added two external board members for the first time. We also changed the staff because many of the staff were spun off as we rehoused the legacy pieces. And then it meant bringing in new staff to then be fit for purpose for what we wanted to do. And we changed the funding model and we changed the operating model. So essentially, that or those were all the key components of the organization. So we were almost like a new organization mm. as of the beginning of 2020. Wow, Cynthia, I mean, that's a, a really interesting pivot in terms of what happened. How did you continue the momentum? Because obviously the work before 2020 was crucial to where you are now. How did you continue the, the story, but obviously with a different focus, a, a new brand, a new name? How, how do you continue momentum? So a lot of that was really about creating the right narrative. We wanted to make sure that the narrative was that this was iterative change. So we were taking all the learnings and building on the good stuff that we'd had before um, and that we used the existing pieces to then build around um, so that it didn't feel like that was bad and this is good or we're not doing that anymore, we're doing this. And rather it was natural evolution. So if you take an example, of one of the pieces that we had inherited as a corporate sponsorship was actually a piece with the International Committee of the Red Cross. And the Red Cross, we originally started with them uh, with a, a partnership with a focus on one particular project called the Physical Rehabilitation Program. And in this program, they will, in really bottom of the pyramid countries, so think DRC, Afghanistan, um, they will uh, they'll help people with disabilities or people who maybe have had, say, landmine accidents, and they will help to physically rehabilitate them, you know, get them to be able to walk again or to be mobile. And they had started also uh, another dimension, which was social reintegration of the people <coughs> who came through their centers. But what they had not been able to do at scale was labor market reintegration of people who came through. So as we were looking for something that would be complementary, that's what we hit on as something where our expertise and their expertise combined could do something that we neither party could do alone. And so in that case, we did lots of additional needs finding about the communities they were working in, what the profiles of the people coming through were, what they had and what they needed, what they already had access to, and then basically looked for the gaps. And then we co-created with them a program to help the people working in the centers to be better facilitators of how do you prepare people with disabilities in bottom of the pyramid countries to then reintegrate into the labor market. And so this wasn't us dropping in and doing trainings in Afghanistan, it was us doing capacity building and training and sharing curriculum and, and co-creating with mm -hmm. their own people who worked in the center in Afghanistan to actually be able to then 
create that facilitation for their own stakeholders on the ground. And so we built that up over the course of about three years. We did lots and lots of end user testing. We created a train the trainer program. And in the end, they, we set it up so that it was essentially a turnkey operation that we had created together. And then we just did a flip so that instead of us being the leader of the project and the also the financial backer of the project, then we actually turned it around so that they actually took it in-house, they staffed it and they funded it, and then we took an advisory kind of backseat role. Yeah. And so um, we used that as part of building that narrative of here's a case where we scanned the landscape, we looked at what was missing, we worked with the right partner, we created possible solutions, we prototyped them and tested them on the ground, we came up with something that we believed would work. We then created that as a full project and product. Um, and then we figured out how to scale it, how to scale it from you know, a few countries to 20 countries to 35 countries, and then how to embed it in the partner so that then it can go forward in a sustainable way, backed by the partner who has the local footprint, the local credibility, the, the backing, and the, the ability to take it forward in a way that we never could. And so then it has left the foundation, it's gone fully into the Red Cross, and then it's now it's theirs, and we still get the reporting from it. We still check in with them on a quarterly basis. We provide them whatever um, kind of support they might need in terms of opening doors or bouncing around ideas, but it's not ours anymore. And so that was a really important part of the narrative, uh, was that as we build things, things up, we don't keep them, mm -hmm. we don't fund them in perpetuity, mm -hmm and that our greatest mark of success is that they go off into the world via somebody else. So they might go into a partner, they might become standalone. For us, it doesn't matter as long as they reach the population that needs them in a sustainable and impactful way. So that was actually the perfect opportunity to say, mm -hmm. see what we built based on the things that we had and the co-creation, and out of that came all these great learnings that basically then became the new model. Wow, and that's this the scan, build, scale. Is that right in terms of, you know, the headlines for that? Um, from what we've what we've talked about before, I think, you know, listeners, if you're and from maybe corporate innovation more in terms of less on social impact but more traditional, as we call it, um, traditional corporate innovation. I think there's so many lessons there in terms of how you continue momentum, evolve. Um, but that model of, of scan, build and scale and not own those innovations, but check in and see the impact. I think there's a lot to, to take away from that. So, so we basically codified that scan, build, scale out mm. of the things that we were seeing that worked. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's based loosely on design thinking, uh, but we're not dogmatic about this. So design thinking is just one of the tools in the toolbox. We use lots of systems thinking as well. We use agile and uh, so it's kind of courses for courses and always focused on what it is we're trying to achieve. It, we've, we've basically distilled this over you know, a couple of years into that scan, build, scale. And then what I've found is it works for, for anything. So mm -hmm. the idea that you scan the landscape, you figure out what the gaps are, you narrow it down to some piece that you think you can attack. So don't try to boil the ocean, but just you know, pick a piece. And then the build, because this is really at the heart of innovation and also design thinking is how do you, how do you spin up small light models and test them and see mm -hmm. what works and then retool and then try it again and test it again, but always do this with end users. 
And so I think that's really important. And then it's only when you get to the point where you've tested it enough and you believe that it has legs, then you can go into the, okay, th these three components work and that's what makes this one most successful or most promising, and then you scale that. Mm -hmm. And so, um, again, back to our original model is that we will we'll identify uh, a problem and a target audience. We do the co-creation and we're always looking for what's in common with that test audience and that test geography, maybe a test industry, what's in common with others so that you build it once and then that allows you to scale it. Because if you're just building once for a very mm. small population, then the amount of social impact you have is going to inherently be really limited. Mm -hmm. And you know, when you, uh, when you mentioned that you scale it and you know, it could go and live back in the community or became a standalone, that it's strong enough to be able to stand on its legs. I guess the big question that a lot of uh, corporate leaders might have is like, how does that link back to a deco, if at all? Um, I think it would be interesting to kind of explore, you know, like how the innovation uh, foundation link back to the mothership. Sure. So if you take the example of the first project that we've done, the one that's furthest along, uh, this is youth at risk. And mm -hmm. we focused in this case um, first on youth and then used our methodology, um, which we've now published as well, to narrow down to youth who are neat, living at or below the poverty line on the urban fringe, 16 to 24, because that's often where you can leave school and you're in that danger zone of maybe never joining the world of war. And then we chose young mothers as the target audience because as a more extreme use case, what works for young mothers would ideally work for other young people, maybe for other people with caring responsibilities or other parents. Um, we chose Mexico as the test bed. Um, and in this case, we then pulled in expertise from the ADECO group. We made sure that we had ADECO group people in the working group. We connected with our local ADECO group colleagues as well to help understand what the local context was. Um, we worked with local NGO partners with whom we also had a corporate relationship. So we were kind of connecting the dots there. We did worked a lot with Plan International. Uh, and then we were able to co-create something that ultimately then adds value for young people who are currently out of the world of work. We built a social campaign that helps young mothers see a pathway through credible information about the world of work, a pathway for them into work. And then we created a tech solution that helps them, people who basically have no work experience, to then identify the skills and competencies that they have out of lived experience so that then they can see it, an employer can see it, and then it points them toward the world of work. Um, and in this case, it means that they are going to be moving closer to the world of work. We can then open up opportunities, um, not directly through the ADECO group, because the idea is not to then you know, shuttle them into the ADECO group funnel mm -hmm. as candidates, but rather to um, help them to understand other opportunities. For example, there's um, a great CSR-linked sustainability project in Mexico that basically allows other um, other employers to mm -hmm. put jobs on uh, essentially a job board and then young people can see um, what's available and can go through trainings. This one's also focused on women and girls. Uh, go mm -hmm. through trainings will then help them to then uh, be ready to work and to then see those opportunities and perhaps go forward but it's not specifically, it's not making money for the ADECO group and it's not feeding them into the ADECO group pipeline. 
Um, however, the Deco group in Mexico gets this nice um, halo effect of mm. if we the women who go through our program then go into that program, which is non-commercial, then they can talk about you know how many young women, uh, young mothers they have upskilled, reskilled, helped to move closer to employment. So the halo effect is mm -hmm. really key. And then there's that possibility to then showcase to a Jekko Group clients, this is the kind of company we are, this is mm -hmm. one of the many ways that we show social impact, this is ways that we are contributing to um, the health of the overall labor force, this is how we're creating um, uh, the ability for companies to meet their DE&I targets. So there mm -hmm. it ties back in in lots of nice adjacent ways to the things that the company cares about and that the company's clients care about as well. So it's not a direct line and we have to be very careful that it's not a direct line, mm. but the, um, the overall brand recognition and the halo effect is really significant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's all important work as well that you're um, that you're currently doing with the community and with the underserved um, populations to give them that you know the employability and access to employment. Um, so you have given us a lot of really impressive and really meaningful projects that you're currently working on. And we're just curious, what's coming up for 2024 um, that you can share? Of course, uh, what's new and what's exciting coming down the line? Sure. So um, in addition to the Youth at Risk project in Mexico, we have two others that are live. So the middle one, the second one, is called Women Back to Work. And mm -hmm. that one is really focused on mid-skill and low-skill women who fell out of work. So not just maternity leave, but really are out of work and have been for some time who are trying to come back in. And we actually triangulated some different things. We looked at the data coming out of COVID uh, that was showing that more women fell out of work than mm -hmm. men and women also didn't come back to work in the numbers that were expected post pandemic. Mm -hmm. And then we wanted to know, okay, who's not coming back to work? And that's how we got to the mid-skill, low-skill women who often were juggling other caring responsibilities, who often didn't want to come back into the work that they left and wanted to make a pivot and were having a hard time getting just a foot in the door if they didn't have exactly that work experience or they couldn't have complete flexibility on hours or they needed to be within a certain proximity of home, these different limitations. So what we're building right now is a tech solution that will make those additional needs visible mm -hmm. to employers, will give women a chance to test out some different kind of, of roles, things that maybe they hadn't done before in a way that will capture the skills and competencies that they have, and then we'll be able to feed them into, again, in a non-commercial way, into the pipeline of a handful of employers with a focus on hospitality. And we chose hospitality because that's an industry that lost a lot of people during mm -hmm. COVID and desperately mm -hmm. needs people back, and that has the ability to take people in with relatively minimal skills and train them. And so if if all of these things come together in the way we anticipate, our long-term goal is to reshape shift work so that shift work will ultimately mm -hmm. become more human-centric, more flexible, more open to non-traditional candidates. And so what we're going for is systems change. And this is really that, that thin mm -hmm. end, edge of the wedge that we can actually then use to, to create that kind of change. Um, and then by the same token, we've got a new project that is mm. about uh, the aging workforce. So mm -hmm. everyone hears how much the world population is aging. 
Um, that is not consistent across the world, of course, but we see that in a lot of countries there is a severely and quickly aging population and that that's going to have implications for tax revenue, for burden on health and social systems, for um, social cohesion, for social exclusion. So we're actually looking at um, this population of, say, 55 to 70 people who have either fallen out of work before they can collect their retirement benefits mm -hmm. Uh, or people who have retired and then find that they can't live on the retirement benefits and are trying to get back in. And so we're looking at this from two angles. One is what are the challenges that the individual faces, but then on the flip side, what are the challenges for employers? Why are employers not specifically going after older workers as this latent pool of talent? So there's lots to explore there. We're actually going to focus that one in the UK. Mm. Uh, but that's actually the one that I'm, I'm most excited about because I think it has phenomenal opportunities to scale and to, to have economic impact as well as social impact. Uh, but they're all equally exciting. Wow, yes, and Cynthia, I'm, I mean, we could talk for a long time to go through those in more detail as well. And I don't know about you, Neil, but I feel very optimistic about 2024 mm -hmm. and feel very encouraged as well that this innovation and the work that you're leading, Cynthia, is a real vehicle for, for innovation. And if you're listening and, you know, within your role, you're considering, you know, what can we do as, as different models, different, um, maybe the foundation model has, has inspired you, then please do get in touch and um, we can help you explore that um, even further. But we, we set this podcast up to help corporate innovation leaders to, to shape, sharpen, their, their approach to innovation. And we always land the podcast with one question, Cynthia. Um, and it's, what's one piece of advice? What's one piece of uh, knowledge, wisdom, insight that you could give to a innovation leader within a corporate to encourage them or to help them sharpen what they do? So Cynthia, over to you with, uh, with our last question. <laughs> so I would say it's kind of a dual answer. I think um, the first is, unlearn a lot of the rigid mindset mm. and ways of working that we all get trained into. So first unlearn so you can be truly open and then be brave and just try things, experiment, think truly out of the box and uh, spin up something small and light, see if it works. If it doesn't work, try it again, but don't be daunted. You've just got to be brave. I love it, unlearn and be brave. Um, I'll take that with me as well. <laughs> um, so listeners, let us know what you think about this story via our social media channels. You can find us at CoCubed on LinkedIn and Twitter. Thank you so much, Cynthia, for joining us today. Um, we really enjoy having you and hearing your story. I hope you had a good time as well. Of course. It was a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. And yeah, thank you everyone for tuning in and we'll see you in the next episode.